body pot um, has been diagnosed with uh, pulmonary fibrosis. Pat? Uh, pat. What are the effects of that? Can't breathe. Can't. It can't breathe. I mean, there is no cure. No. So it'll be like an asthmatic condition, but worse, and it's it. It's it, like fibers are growing in the lung. It's like you, yeah. It, the lung is closing in. Like I mean, she it, it, is the time been given? I mean, was they, did they say you have a year to live or just? They haven't given her time. She's just newly diagnosed with this. My father-in-law died of it. He was gone after six months. Uh, that was 20 years ago. So I believe I met some other people that have been able to live three years, five years. Um, so I'm hoping that she gets a little, at least that length of time. Um, so. The only really outlier is if you get a lung transplant. But other than that, the medicine does, I guess. Um, How old is she? 77. 77. Her name's Pat? Her name's Pat. Anybody else? Denise Knapshaper. Uh, she died of uh, lung cancer. We prayed for her earlier. Um, Denise. Okay. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our lives. We would not be here but for you, for the gift of yourself this morning in the Mass and your words. Your words are, um, two will be lying in bed, one will be taken, two on the rooftop. Um, the time will come, there was the flood. You, re you reminded us in your words. Um, the fire and brimstone that rained down on Sodom. Um, Lot and his wife left. His wife couldn't let go. She turned around and went back. Um, a real alarm, um, a warning in your words this morning. The last image of a vulture eating the body. I think it's a warning that we not let our attachments to the world, the, the carnal part of us, keep us from doing what you're asking. You call us all to holiness. Um, strengthen us in our efforts to let go of the attachments, to put the world away, to love as you do, to bring that to all that we do. Help us to find a strength in what we're learning in these readings to, to see more clearly the truth that we hold and the help that you offer. Ask a special blessing on Pat um, comfort her in this trial and um, if suffering is going to be a part of it and impossible to escape um, let her find consolation even if it's possible such things a gladness somewhere in the suffering for going to a cross with you help her to see it that way and help her to find a strength in it there Ask a special blessing on Denise. Receive her into your kingdom. Forgive her her sins. Let our prayers help. We need each other. Um, glad to offer them. Um, speed her to you so that, um, having turned from the miseries of this world, she will know the joy of being with you and with those that she loves who've gone before her. We offer these prayers. Um, in you, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay. Um.
Thanks. That's for, I shocked you. Sorry. That's for both. Okay. Um, I'm going to skip the poem this morning so we can uh, we can get to this. I think probably um, most of what I'm going to do today um, will be repeating what I've already said. It's just going to be in um, a summary in some ways. I hope I can come to some conclusions based on the work that we've done um, together. Um, part of it is looking forward to Dante. I'll, I'll speak to, about Dante in a few minutes. To we haven't started Dante, so I don't I don't want to do too much. But I want to set up something as a contrast to help clarify what we're doing. Um, hi, Lois. There's handouts and there's food. Um, and coffee. Um, the, the one question that I want to pose to everybody and ask everybody to just keep it in the back of your minds as we move forward, it's a sort of overarching question that relates to everything that we're doing. Um, everything, we'll, everything we touch on, I think, I hope will flesh it out and give it a little bit more meaning, but it's, it's a basic question, everything we've been doing, and it's this question, Faith in what? Faith in what? What faith? We've talked. We've talked about it since we um, started our work together here, um, because it was central to the Reformation. Everything the Reformation people were doing, all of the Reformation thinkers made faith the sin qua non, the the basis on which everything else was done. Um, um, everything else depended on it. So I just want to put it out there. But I'd like to put it this way. Faith in what? Um, I was reading um, Bishop Barron's book. It's, um, I think it's called Exquisite Paradoxes. And uh, Suzanne and I have tremendously enjoyed him. I told you about the books. One of them's called Catholicism. It's just a general introduction, introduction to the church. Um, it's so good. It's anecdotal. It's got pictures. It refers to music. It's the whole church. And another book called Seeds, in which he's writing sh short three-page essays. They're all very short on um, matters of culture, movies, books, lectures, you know, simple stuff like this that make up popular culture. But every one of them is sort of Thomistic in one sense. He, he's looking at something anecdotally and making an argument related to it. So he can take a Woody Allen movie, say, or. Um, Obama's visit to uh, Notre Dame to give a talk in, um, in which he asked the president to take down or cover up the cross and the president obliged him. Barron wasn't happy with that and he's critical of that. I'm, I mean, to me, it really, to me it was a big cop-out. I'm sorry that he did it, but it's little things like that where he's, where he's just taking on things of popular culture as a way of showing that God is at work everywhere. It's, it's a really wonderful collection. It's called Seeds. And the, the book that I'm doing right now is called, I think, Exquisite Paradoxes. Um, and in, in one of them, he's talking about um, some of the effects of Vatican II and, and the struggle or the conflict between science and religion that, that he rightly sees as um, misunderstood at, at bottom. 
because um, um, if science is based on reason and our powers of reason to find rationality in nature, um, and faith has as its object God, those things we can't see, they come from the same source. There should not be a conflict, even though the modern world is torn apart on it. Because so many people in the sciences see the sciences as proof that religion belongs to a pre-scientific age, that it has no business in our world. But he's talking about faith, and as an analogy, he, gives, he, he talks about um, a relationship between a man and a woman, and all that transpires leading up to a moment when they will become intimate with each other. And he says, you can know all you can about this person, but a time comes when you realize you've got to take some things on trust. And he uses that as an analogy for faith. I'm not comfortable with it, um, because so often we here in our world have faith in me. You know, um, um, or, or I hope I get a bicycle for Christmas. I've already talked about this. You've heard me talk about it before. Faith, hope, and charity are supernatural virtues. They're gifts from God. They have to do with supernatural realities. So the real object of faith is those things, that, the certain knowledge of those things unseen, not things of the world. So my question here is, faith in what? <clears throat> if... What's, I'm just going to use one of the sacraments. It could apply to all the sacraments. If the sacrament is nothing more than commemorative, if it's nothing more than a wafer and wine, then why faith? Because reason will do just as well. If there's nothing more than wine or bread, what's there to have faith in? I hope that's clear. Yeah, Because faith has to do with supernatural things. <coughs> things that aren't apparent to our senses, our powers of reason. So faith in what? Um, if in the Eucharist it's just commemorative and there's nothing more there than bread and wine, um, reason will do just as well to grasp whatever that is. And you know that that's fundamental because so many of the Reformation thinkers deny the supernatural in it. They say it's, it's, not, it's not Christ in his real presence. So. So this whole question of faith, what it means for us, okay? Um, remember, I can't remember Paul's words now, but something like the, cert the certainty of, of things unseen, the certain knowledge of things unseen, that's what faith is. It requires, it involves the act of the mind knowing, okay? But it's not knowledge as we think of knowledge of temporal things, okay? Now, also, one, one second matter before we, we look at Milton and try to pull all of this together. Remember, I've given you this historical timeline. If we go back historically and, and look at the developments in time having to do with religion, we know that the pagan world, the pre-Christian pagan world, was religious, deeply religious. They believed in the gods, the Homeric gods, the Virgilian gods, the, the, the Roman pantheon, the Greek Hellenic pantheon of gods. Um, they knew, we know this from Homer, those of you who've done it know, that the men, let's just take Homer for, and leave Virgil out for a second, if you take Homer, the Odyssey, you know that if, you, if you've read that book, that people who deny the gods are always in trouble. They're getting in trouble all the time. Um, the suitors deny the gods. 
They don't listen to prophecies and warnings when they come. Homer's really clear in what happens because what happens for those people who deny the gods is they live in an arrogance and a blindness. They don't see. There's lots they just don't see. One of the values of Homer is that he shows what happens to men who deny the gods when the gods when he shows what the gods are doing all the time. Odysseus's companions, the ships, the, the shipmates, disregard the gods' warnings and they die. So Homer makes it clear that people who deny the supernatural or the beyond the range of men live in an arrogance, a blindness. There's just so much they don't see and it has an effect on the way they live. They, the, 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 what they have in common generally is um, they use each other. They have no reason for not doing anything differently. So the pagan world was very much aware of the gods and they were very much aware of human limitations. When humans tried to exceed themselves, they brought on catastrophes. We just see that again and again. So one of the distinguishing marks of classical, the classical world is um, this awareness of something beyond man, that there's a transcendent order of things, and that man had to acknowledge it. And when he didn't, when he exceeded his natural human limitations, he paid a price. So one of the differences between um, a classical Christian view and what we would in our modern times call a romantic Christian view is one has a sense of settled limitations, the other one is restless with no sense of limitations. That's our world. So in whatever way we cut ourselves off from that classical past, we, we lose a source of a reminder of our humanness, our human limitations, how important it is to work with them, to acknowledge them. Christ comes into the world and he, um, he in one sense, continues the pagan world because you know um, that there's lots of ways in which Homer anticipates Christ. Achilles doesn't fully become himself until he accepts his own death. It's like a prelude to Christ when he says, unless a seed fall to the ground, unless you give up your life. So there are continuities um, in, between Christianity and the pagan world. In lots of ways, he, Christ carries forward some of the things we learn from people like Achilles and Odysseus and Aeneas. The piety of Aeneas, his respect for the gods, is trying to follow the will of the gods. But he also brings in something radically different because um, he, he takes on our human nature in order to answer a sin. So he reveals something that the pagan world didn't had some faint understanding of but didn't completely understand. Um, and he founds his church and um, basic to his church are the sacraments. All those things that he instituted while he was here that carry forward miraculous powers to heal. The Eucharist, baptism, marriage, orders, confirmation, things like that. Um, we can call this a, a theocentric world, a God-centered world. With the advent of sciences, the, the um, Copernican Revolution and the Reformation and, and 
what's called in the modern world idealist philosophies. Idealist because the the, the basic assumption of modern philosophers, beginning with um, Descartes, um, is that what we know are not what our senses give us, what we know are the ideas of our mind. That's what we know. So a schism is set up between our body and the world. We don't, we don't know what our senses deliver to us. We don't know things anymore. What we know are ideas in our head. <laughs> So the idealist philosophy begins then, Descartes, Kant, and others following them. So the, the combination of the confluence of those three things, the Copernican Revolution, the Reformation, and the, the beginnings of the idealist philosophy, put modern man in his head. We've seen that in the Reformation. Um, I'll come back to that in a minute. Um, the, the scientific mind tends to live in abstractions. Um, and the idealist philosophers put us in abstractions. It, it's led us to what we know today as ideologies. That, that man's no longer relating to nature, he relates to a system of ideas that he makes up in his own head. That's what an ideology is. People who, who, who live that way look at Christianity as nothing more than another ideology. It's just another system. It's, it's a made-up system. Uh, so we, we, we've lost our way into the concrete order. We've lost our capacity for concrete experience. That's one of the qualities of the modern mind, okay? And I, I designate this point here, I call it the advent of the sign. Remember the disciples in the, in the Bible. We saw it in C.S. Lewis um, in the Two We Have Faces. I can't remember where it came up. But there, there were passages where somebody was, I can't remember if it was Oriol or Barty or somebody, but wanted a sign. And the disciples, remember, were constantly asking Christ, show us a sign. We, we talked about that before. It's so ironic because in one of the instances, they just came out back from Christ performing, <clears throat> I think it was the, the feeding of the 5,000. He just performed this miracle. He took these few pieces of fish and bread and and multiplied it, fed it. So it's, a, it's a prefiguration of the Eucharist in some sense. And the disciples are asking for a sign, show us a sign. It's just, it's just laughable. He just, he just did. What they want is they want their sense of the miraculous to be reduced down to their level, to flatten it out, to make, to, to make it accommodate reason. So what's happened in the modern world is we flattened the miraculous, the, the mystical, the sacramental, out. It's reduced to reason. The, the modern mind, the modern empirical mind, thinks that anything that can't be measured or quantified or um, given to the senses is not real. So the whole sacramental world disappears. It's, it's occulted. It's hidden. It's not there. So that's just a very quick overview of some of the important things that we've been looking at. I want to look at Milton um, and then go back to the Protestant world and see if, if we can draw some conclusions from what we've done with Milton. Okay, um, And that will set us up for Dante. But let me stop for a minute. Any, any comments or questions on just that, that brief sketch that I've given before we look at Milton.
Barron, Robert Barron, he's a bishop. He did a B -A -R -O -N. TV, B-A-R-R-O-N, I think. He did a, um, I wasn't familiar with this. Suzanne came up with this book and we've just begun reading it and I'm so enjoying it, he's really good. Um, he apparently did a TV series that was very successful <coughs> called Catholicism or something. It was shown here at your church as well. Was shown here? Yeah. Oh yeah, um, well. Oh, he did. Yeah. Oh, wow. What? So this is years ago. Yeah. Yeah, that's like when he first started. Yeah. Jared's working for him right now. He's his secretary. Um, I think he lives in Barron. Lives in, I think in L.A. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think that's where he was transferred to. I think it was out of Chicago, and then he was Barron. Became bishop. Yeah. In yeah. California. One more thing. You talked about the Reformation and the rise of science and. Thing, but uh, another another important factor, I think, is the rise of national states nationalism. Yep. That you know is completely political, which is you know, yep. part of our culture. Today. Yeah. No, it's true. <laughs> um, and I, I think I've mentioned this before when we've done Shakespeare that and Dante, both of them are on the threshold of the emergence of the modern national state and its tendency to take on absolute powers. When the Holy Roman Empire collapses and we go into the modern world. Remember, I've said, for those of you who did Dante before, Dante's the prophet of the modern world in one sense because the, the modern commercial regime, um, which is our regime, has its beginnings then. The, the first prototype of the modern commercial republic, the, the, the date of the founding, I think, corresponds to Dante's birth Come, it, it emerges then, comes into existence then. We'll get to that one in the opening talks um, when we get to Dante. But the whole of the Commedia, in a, in a sense, is laying bare our world and all of its horrors. Um, it's not going to be a comfortable sight, particularly in hell. But um, but that the modern state emerges then, and once once you combine those th three other factors that I mentioned a minute ago, what you see is as God disappears, the modern state tends to take on absolute powers, becomes totalitarian. There's lots about our own democracy that's totalitarian. I hope that's clear. If 51% if of the people vote for X, X is going to be. It's going to have a total power, even if 49% don't like it. Um, because there is no other power. Um, it, to me, it was a really, it was an awful, it was a shameful thing, I thought, when the Notre Dame president covered up the cross because Barack Obama asked for it. And he, did it he did it at Georgiatown with, a, with something else, too. Um, the, the political ideal under which we're living is a progressive utopia. The assumption of the modern mind is if you get religion out of the world, conflicts will cease. The ideal of the modern world is we will create a democracy that will make it possible for all people to come together and get along peacefully. That's why Christianity is not very popular with the modern secular mind. It believes that Christianity, Islam, Judaism, and other religions should be able to coexist peacefully. Tell the religious leaders that. 
at the heart of the Quran are these passages that say, kill the infidel. Kill the infidel, destroy it. Christ says, I've come to bring a sword, a con- and I, I will reduce the world to a conflagration. Consume it in fire. There's something apocalyptic about dogmatic religions. The modern world wants to get rid of dogma. The one dogma is we'll all get along. If anybody opposes that, you already because you see it everywhere in the news, it means you're bigoted, you're prejudiced. You've got these religious prejudices you should, you should have gotten rid of a long time ago. The modern world hates every dogma except its own. Um, so, okay, let's quickly, um, I want to just quickly touch on some things we saw in Milton. What are, I'd like to look at two things concerning Milton. First, what I think are weaknesses that are important to acknowledge and some of the strengths of his story. Milton's weaknesses. What he does with God, angels, man, good and evil, and Christ himself. What, how does he treat those? What do we take away from Paradise Lost when we consider those things? There are problems in his treatment of God, first of all. Most critics find Milton's God insufferable. He's defensive, he's touchy, he's even spiteful. When he says he's going to create this new world so Satan won't have the upper hand. Um, he, he doesn't want to have Satan the last word, so he's going to create this new world. He doesn't create it in love. It's in response to the fall. Um, when we see the father and son interacting, the father says things about which the son has no knowledge. When the son responds, it's clear that he's telling the father something the father didn't know before that moment. So when we look at them, they're two individuals who are communicating. There's no sense of an indwelling. None. None. According to the Catholic tradition, the, the Trinity is indwelling. The word for that is perichoresis. Perichoresis. The indwelling of the three persons. Perichoresis. Indwelling. If they're indwelling, here, let me put it differently. Let me, I've done this before, quickly. The Father's concept of himself is the Son. When he, to know himself is to conceive an image of himself. That's the Son. So the Son is God like the Father. He's, um, he wasn't before God, wasn't after, right? God wasn't created, he's uncreated. The Son is begotten, not created, not made. He's one with the Father. The love between the Father and Son is the Spirit. Um, I'm going to come back to this. Another. The Greek world, is, is this, the, uh, what's it called? The filioque. The reason for the schism in the 11th century is the Greek said the, the, the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, does not proceed from the Father and the Son. The Western Church has always maintained it did. If the Greeks are right, that the Holy Spirit um, was conceived directly from the Father, not the Son, then it means the Father has two sons, which cannot be. The, lo- it, the, the Holy Spirit is the love between the two. It's a, different, it's, a different, it's a different aspect of the procession from the Father to the Son to the Holy Spirit. I'm going to come back to that because that's not a small thing. 
The Son is an image of the Father. He's one with him. The Holy Spirit is one. So each one of them contains the other two fully. It can't be otherwise. They, they exist in perfect love with each other. One of them, the other two are always in one. Okay? So there's no way one of them could say something that the other already didn't know. When we go up to the Divine Comedy in the Paradiso, I think I've, I've described this before, Beatrice, there, Dante and Beatrice are going to reach a point where Dante will be about to say something and Beatrice will already know what he has to say before he says it. Why? Because they're becoming one in love. It's the condition in heaven. However that would I mean, Dante's going to do amazing things with that, but he does it. He shows that there is this union. The church has talked about marriage as you know, bringing couples together to make one flesh. That's not just an arbitrary metaphor. It's real. Presumably, one of the reasons for marrying is to learn to become one with another. And I'm trusting everybody knows how hard that is. I mean, you, you, <laughs> we, have, we have to deal with a lot of fighting and a lot of problems in our marriage to learn to get past them to become one. It's, it's as if we, we have to learn to make a good greater than whatever bad it is we tend to focus when we're arguing or fighting. I, trusting everybody relates to this. <laughs> we all know that. Um, when that goodness becomes greater than the focus that we give some sin, we become more one and one in that goodness. We grow closer together. The ultimate ground of that is the Trinity. So if we're made in God's image, if we're made in God's image, we should not be isolated individuals. We're communal by nature. The modern world has lost that. I think in some ways the Protestant world has lost it. I'll come to it because it so isolates people. If we're made by if we're made in God's image and God is Trinitarian, then we're Trinitarian in our structure. It's, it's in wire in us. It's the way we are. We were meant to love and be loved. That's the divine aspect of our souls. Um, so when, when, when we're experiencing Paradise Lost, we tend to experience the Father and Son as if they're distinct individuals, even if they share the same nature, they don't relate to each other as if they do. We know from that passage when the Father calls the, the host of heaven together to say, um, how's it praise him? This is he in whom I've begotten. Um, what's the word that whom I've begotten? You know, praise my son. On that day of his begetting, um, the angels revolt. Because you know from our reading that that's the reason that Satan gives for the revolt. That if the whole angelic company is made of the same stuff, all of the angels are the same stuff as the sun, even though the sun was the means of making them all, they share the same nature, God has no business elevating the sun above the others. To do that is an arbitrary act. That's Satan's justification for the revolt. Um, if that's so, um, is the Son one with the Father, or is he a special creation, even if he's the means by which everything else in creation was made? So it looks as if there's an Aryan aspect to Milton's thinking, that um, the Son is not quite what the Father is. Um, 
is one with the angels in some strange way. So there's a problem in Milton's presentation of the sun. Um, one of the difficulties with Adam and Eve, with man and woman, is that Milton sets up the fall so that we, and anybody reading Paradise Lost seriously, will come away saying, the fall's already present before the fall takes place. Otherwise, how do we explain it? Pride's not a cause of the fall. Pride's an effect of the fall. The narcissistic, self-love, envy, all of those things. That's why I asked you when we went over Milton if, if we could take a few minutes and try to reimagine. If, if either Satan brought out pride or he did something else and it's different from the way Milton presented it. Um, so we've got a problem there. The way that he presents Adam and Eve is um, as idealized creatures. They're very idealized. They're, they're beautiful in lots of ways. But once again, Milton is, is um, creating a picture that almost only has an oblique, an indirect relationship to our human experiences because we only know of ourselves through a fall. We, we live the fall. We carry it with us every day of our lives. The Adam and Eve that he shows us are presented as not having any fallen qualities, and yet he sets them up. We talked about that. There are little things that he does. In, in the last, after, uh, after Satan whispers in Eve's ear, Remember, she wakes up wanting to be separate. So there are little things that Milton has to do to set this up. Um, the knowledge that Milton offers us and, and which he identifies with man, with us with human beings, is problematic um, in my mind to the nth degree. We've talked about this, how important it is. Everything that Adam knows, he knows from Raphael. Raphael gives him a knowledge of things Adam cannot know. Remember that passage. It's, it, in some ways, it's a justification of what Milton does with the whole poem. Remember he says, if, if you will only be obedient one day, you will, you will be transformed, etherealized, spiritualized, you'll become like the angels. That's a sad comment because... We're human beings, we have a body. In Dante, it's clear that, um, and we see it in the, in, in the New Testament too, um, that at the resurrection, our bodies will be returned to us in the afterlife, in the ultimate, in final ends, our bodies will be returned, but transformed. So we're going to have some glorious body. Paul speaks about it. Uh, we can't imagine it, um, it's so glorious. But we will have a body. Um, Raphael says to Adam, when you're obedient, and, um, and Adam says, what do you mean? Because he has no reason for believing things will ever be different. And it's at that point that Raphael describes the war in heaven, and he makes it clear to do that, he has to use corporeal images, because Adam's a man. That's exactly what Milton does. And after he describes the war in heaven, you remember, he says, this will be part of your posterity, you will carry it on, even though these things um, happen before your memory. So Raphael is passing on an angelic knowledge which Adam will carry into the human world and will be a part of what's passed on in posterity. At the very end, when Michael shows Adam the visions, remember what he's going to face when he leaves paradise, he shows him um, 
all of history leading up to the founding of the tribes, the calling out of Abraham and the founding of the tribes and then the coming of Christ. And he divides that into those two sections, everything before leading up to that and everything after. In the first set of visions, the first set of six visions, they're presented immediately as visions. They're unmediated. He sees them. They haven't even taken place yet. So in one sense, what he's showing him can only exist in the foreknowledge of God. Nobody else? Who can know those? Michael's presenting what I'm assuming is God's foreknowledge, because none of these events have happened yet. They're they're off in the future. So Adam has access to foreknowledge. I mean, I, I wonder how much of this isn't Calvinistic. Some people are predestined to be damned. You know, God's seen it all. There's no free will. Whatever's going to be is going to be. It's in God's hands. Um, In the second set of six visions, Michael um, steps back from those immediate visions and he narrates the rest of it, everything leading up to Christ. Because he says Adam's too tired. To see those visions immediately is too tiring on him as a human. So the the two major sources of knowledge for everything that Adam is going to take into the world after after the fall is angelic is angelic. Hi, Tom. Good to see you again. Um, Now stop and think about this because this is major. Both Raphael and Michael say, whatever you do, make sure you don't try to exceed your own limits in whatever you ask to know. That's from an angel. Whatever you do, don't try to exceed your grasp as a human. What has he just given, both of them? Raphael gives him a description of the heaven, or the war in heaven, uh, which is not available to man. And Michael gives him a a foreview of all that's going to take place that only God knows. That's what Adam is going to carry forward when he enters the fallen world, when he leaves Eden. So the most important thing for Milton in defining Adam, as a human being, is angelic knowledge. We've lost our way, through Milton, we've lost our way into the natural order. We don't know concrete things. We've lost our capacity for a human concrete thing. That is, things delivered to our senses. You want to find knowledge delivered to our senses? Where do you go? You go to literature. Philosophy, by its nature, is abstract. Metaphysics is is abstract. Science, by nature, is abstract. History takes us back to the concrete world. So does literature. That's why they're so important. I mean, any good curriculum is going to have the sciences, philosophy, literature, history. You know. But the interesting thing here in Milton is that the basis of human knowing for Adam when he goes out into the world is angelic. It's not human. So keep that in mind because once again I'm going to go back to the Reformation and what I think what the Reformation does to encourage that. So um, Milton's treatment of God, the angels, man are all fundamentally problematic to say the least. His treatment of Christ wait, 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 wait. one 
One of the things that we can say about the poem as we look at the whole action of it is that Milton is very capable of showing evil. The first five or six books focus on Satan and the angels, right? And he's capable of showing Adam and Eve in an idealized form. And when they fight, I mean, it seems to me his rendering of the fight is really good. It's honest. I mean, that's, that's the way we look when we fight with each other. Um, Adam gets really angry at her because she takes the fruit and they, they fight back and forth. Um, but they both reach a point where they say, stop. And they go to the judgment seat in humility because they've learned that if they go on like that, they're going to be hateful. Um, he's very good at that. And, but then it stops there. When they go into the fallen world, we get nothing. So Milton is really good at, at showing evil. He's really good at showing an idealized paradise. And briefly, Adam and Eve. What's questionable is this. When we get to Christ at the end, and I've talked about this because there are, there are um, two, two trajectories. What I, what I call the moral trajectory, what Adam doesn't know, you know, um, he, he doesn't know anything about Christ until uh, Michael shows, describes Christ to him. All he knows is that he, he's the cause of all the miseries of the world. Remember, he has to suffer that as the whole historic vision is unfolded. He says that over, in fact, he collapses. He falls down. He, he's so crushed when he sees the consequences of what he's done. But then Michael will come to the point where he'll say, here's this Messiah, and Adam will wake up and say, my God, how good this is, you know, that, that all of this wrong was undone. But we get that in abstract statements. So... If we look at the, the dramatic force of the poem, the dramatic force of the poem, the compelling force of the poem is on Satan and the idealized presentation of Adam and Eve. When we get to Christ, who is, the, who is going to answer all of this, Milton gives it to us in statement, in abstract statements. It has no dramatic force at all. I hope that's clear. We don't, we don't see Christ. Christ is not rendered concretely. He's not shown on the cross. And I, I want to come back to that because that to me is major. So, Milton's very good at dealing with evil. How good is he at dealing, rendering love? A humiliating, a divine person taking on a condition of absolute helplessness, weakness, and going to a cross. How good is he at doing that? If love means the surrendering of the self for another, what has Milton done to render that for us? We feel the force of evil. We see an idealized Adam and Eve. What do we know of a God who allowed his divine personhood to be crushed, to become utterly weak? As, and asking us to accept that into our own lives and live it in what we do with each other. So... When we get to Dante, I mean, I'm going to make this claim, you'll see it. When we get to Dante, I'm going to say, Dante's the poet of love. We will see that again and again and again. Dante starts with what's real. He starts with um, himself. He starts with Mary, with Beatrice, with Lucia, with Virgil. They are all real people. He will go through the Divine Comedy. He'll be meeting real people along. At one point, he'll meet his great-great-great-great-grandfather. Dante grounds himself in what's real. 
He has to humble himself with what's there. <coughs> He's not in his head. He's not in abstractions. And you know, I've said this, I mean, we'll see it when we read it, that as he moves up to Paradiso, he becomes one with these people. He's sharing the life of the Trinity in what he does with each other. He and Beatrice already know what's in their minds, practically, before they say it. So love is unitive. Love brings us together, makes us one. What do we know of that experience in Paradise Lost? Even with Adam and Eve. So, um, Milton's treatment of things generally are just full of problems. Critics are recognizing that, have recognized that more and more over time. So, um, Don, sorry, did you have something? Well, you may think this up about science is abstract. I disagree with that. With what? Sorry, Don. You said science is abstract. Mm -hmm. I disagree with that. It's real. It is. I'm not. I'm not denying that it's real. I don't understand what you're saying. Science because, wait, let me, well, let me, let me qualify it because it's, was, that wasn't my intention. Insofar as the modern sciences rest on math, measurable things, it all tends in the direction of quantity, which is an abstraction. It begins with what's present to the senses. Right? Empirical sciences all begin with what's present to our senses. But the knowledge that it gives us tends towards an abstraction, a geometric, a mathematical abstraction of that concrete. So the concrete is very often left behind and put in terms of probability, some abstraction, whatever, whatever it is. Um, um, the, the, the material world, the thingness of things, whatever exists in itself, in its material properties, is made to give way to a geometric mathematical abstraction. So it moves in the direction of abstractions. It begins with a concrete world, but... Remember when I did the... I'll come back to this in a second again, um, when we get here. Um, remember the difference between the starting points for the Platonic mind and the Aristotelian mind, because um, the... Let me wait on that, because I want to come to it. But just remember in, in Aristotle, you begin with the concrete thing, and you find in it analogies of other things, but you never leave that concrete thing behind. It's a part of what you do. So a, an abstraction never substitutes for it or takes the place of it. It's, you keep it with you the whole time. Um, Milton's strength seems to me the the the, one of the great beauties of Paradise Lost is that it's, it's the story of all stories. Um, by taking Genesis, the fall, as his subject, Milton let the cat out of the bag. He, he, he made clear the reason of every other epic, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, that what man was left with was the effects of the fall. If the pagan world didn't understand it perfectly, Christian world couldn't miss it. Genesis makes that clear. The reason for all of our problems are the fall. What began with Satan and what led to the temptation in the garden, the fall, the, the loss of the garden. So the beauty of that is he went to the center of everything. One of the other problematic areas that I've mentioned before is when he does that, by, by doing it the way he did, 
he, he indirectly, or even in some ways directly, casts a dark light over the entire epic world by making Satan the epic hero and showing that there's nothing Satan did that wasn't awful. There's no way to believe anything he says because he doesn't say anything that isn't a lie. He casts a dark light on everything. Um, remember that for Milton, all of the ancient gods had their source in the fallen demons. Those demons were the Homeric gods, the source of all those gods. So he casts this dark, dark light over the whole epic tradition, looking back. Once again, think, you know, associate, I mean, what's the link between that and the Protestant mind? Remember, for the Catholic, nature's good. It's not depraved. It wasn't ruined by the fall. You can't ruin an essence. You can't destroy an essence, what God made an essence. Um, you can wound it. We, we say that the effects of the fall are this concupiscence, that this desire that we have is, can be overpowering. I'm trusting we all know it. Trying to answer our sins is tough, tough job. We can't do it without Christ, without help. But we don't believe that man's depraved or that nature's depraved, that it's wounded. Um, the beauty of the poetry, um, the poets following Milton were taken. They lived under a shadow. Um, what he did with poetry, they thought, they thought was so amazing. Seems to me those are the, the two um, strengths of Paradise Lost. Um, let's see if I can find this. Um, I have a quote here from. Paradise Lost, line 402, book, book 12, just briefly to one last thing before we leave Milton. Line Just a very brief passage. Let me read this, and I want to set a passage next to it from Traherne, an early church father. The law of God, this is Michael talking about the Messiah. And remember, um, what we get of Christ is described in abstractions. Everybody's clear in what I'm talking, right? He doesn't render it concretely. What we get in Satan is concretely rendered, yeah? So there's a tremendous dramatic force in watching Satan do what he does. That's why so many poets have said Milton was of the devil's party, because he gave such energy to um, Satan. We don't see Christ doing anything, not taking on the Pharisees, not scolding the disciples, not weeping when he looked at Jerusalem, when he looked down at the city on that day and he wept because he knew it was about to be destroyed. 
he was Jewish. He looked at the Jerusalem and wept. Um, John was on his breast in the Last Supper, and he got tearful. Um, he gets angry at Peter, says, get behind. I mean, there's so much going on in Christ's life. Not, not anything. It, it's not given. And I've said this before. Remember, we can look at the moral trajectory. It goes from the beginning and Adam to the end. When Adam sees, it's all okay because Christ is going to redeem everybody. But I, I talked about what I called the, the formal center of the poem. The formal center is what I'm calling angelic knowledge. It all goes towards this angelic knowledge. What do I mean by that? I, 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 I described this before. Milton could have done this poem differently. I, everybody's got to see that. That's so clear. He could have done it differently, right? He could have shown Satan in book one doing everything he did. He could have gone on to show Adam and Eve in the garden. He could have gone on to show Christ concretely. He could have done lots of things. He didn't. What he did was show Satan. And the, the reason that's important is because we get all of that as it's related to Raphael. And we're told by Raphael that Adam's going to carry that angelic knowledge on. And then we get it again with Michael. So the center of the poem, what defines what Milton does, because he's doing what Raphael does, he's doing exactly what Raphael does. He's taking things we do not know, that's what he starts with, and then he gives us descriptions to make them clear to us. So the whole center of the poem is angelic knowledge. It is for us. He's presuming to show what man can't know, this war in heaven and everything that Satan did. He could have done it differently. He didn't. He did it that way. So what he does is make angelic knowledge the defining formal principle. It's what informs everything with, Raphael, with himself, with Raphael, with Michael. So that's the mode of knowledge for Milton. Here in book 12, when, when Michael is describing the Messiah that's going to save everything, he has this brief description. The law of God exact he shall fulfill, both by obedience and by love, though love alone fulfill the law. Thy punishment he shall endure by coming in the flesh to a reproachful life and cursed death, proclaiming life to all who shall believe in his redemption, and that his obedience imputed, notice, it's imputed, becomes theirs by faith. Presumably, obedience becomes a part of us by our faith. That's what he's saying. Okay. His merits to save them, not their own, though legal works. It's Christ's work, his, what he does that saves us, not our own works, even if they have a legal status in the world. If everybody in the world looks at our works as okay, though legal works, to save them, not their own, though legal works, for this he shall live hated, be blasphemed. It's Christ what he did. Our own works, even if they're admired in the civic world, will not save us. It's only what Christ does. Um, the legal works for this he shall live, hated, be blasphemed, seized on by force, judge, and to death condemned, a shameful and accursed, nailed to the cross by his own nation, slain for bringing life. But to the cross he nails thy enemies, the law that is against thee and the sins of all mankind, with him they're crucified. He takes his enemies to the cross, um, defeats them. Works are done away with by what Christ does. 
Um, and the sins of all mankind with him they're crucified, never to hurt them more who rightly trust in this his satisfaction, um, his pain, this death. So he dies, but soon revives, death over him, no power shall long usurp. That's it. That's our Messiah. There it is. Now, um, Tilliard, who is a, wrote a wonderful book on, on Milton, takes this passage from Traherne, who's an early church father, who's speaking about the cross. Now set the two next to each other with Milton's presentation of the cross and Traherne. The cross is a tree set on fire with invisible flame that illumineth all the, all the world. The flame is love. The love is his Johnson who died on it, in the light of which we see how to possess all things in heaven and earth after his similitude. For he that suffered on it was the Son of God as you are, though he seemed only a mortal man. He had acquaintance and relations of you have, but he was a lover of men and angels. He loved everything. Was he not the Son of God? and heir to the whole world. To this poor, bleeding, naked man did all the corn and wine and oil and gold and silver in the world minister in an invisible manner, even as he was exposed lying and dying upon the cross. For him, the cross is a glory. And anybody who suffers should be able to identify with the beauty of it because he relates to a God who gave his life for everybody. So think about the differences there. Um, remember, the, the Reformation thinkers tended to degrade the body, the things of nature. The most important thing was faith in their head. They, to a person, almost, they, they looked at the body as a degraded... This, they're, all, they're all platonic, in a sense. And that, that's why I put Plato and Aristotle next to each other. To them, nature was depraved. The body was depraved. Calvin hated the body. Gen genuinely. Um, Christ took on a body. He sanctified it. He sanctified everything in nature. It was our, God made it good in the beginning, right? I mean, the Catholic belief is it's wounded, but it's good. It's good. It should be celebrated. It's a cause of joy. We should feel a joy in watching a wind hover, a bird. Um, so, Traherne is looking at the cross as the source of glory that God died on it so that anybody um, struggling with some spiritual ordeal or physical ordeal, any suffering, who could identify with the cross could find some consolation, a joy, a belief that there is love. Who do you meet on the cross? Christ. So whenever we go there, I mean, one of the, I mean, a, whatever story, by the way, the passage that I want to read from Tate Got to, got to get to that. It goes so directly to this. I want to read it in a second. So those are some of the major things that I think we take out of Milton's Paradise Lost. Can we make any inferences? Can we go to anything Catholic, Protestant? Just a couple of things here. Remember that um, for the Protestant, the Reformation Protestant, the most, thing, most important things were faith, scripture, Faith in Scripture, sola, sola fide, faith alone, sola scriptura, Scripture alone. What they did by treating faith that way and separating themselves from the sacraments was separating themselves from the objective reality of Christ. What they did was make faith as a subjective experience the basis of everything they did. 
if they start with a supernatural experience, um, there's no way to argue them. They can all, they can all hold differences. They, you know that, we've seen this before. Calvin and Luther met. They disagreed fundamentally. That presented no problem to them. Why should it? Because they start with supernatural experiences. There's no way to confirm them. None. It's a supernatural event. So they, don't, they are arbiters of their own lives. Who can prove them wrong? They can never be wrong. They can't be argued with. If that's their starting point and reason is corrupt, who can reason? Um, look at Milton's tracts. He, he didn't experience anything almost <laughs> that he didn't respond to by writing a tract against it. Sometimes I laugh and I think, I, I don't know if I said this before, but if Milton walked into a store and had a fight with a grocer, you have to expect him to go home and write a treatise against grocers or, you know, I mean, it's just um, set against that. The, um, Christ giving Peter the key, the fact that the tradition preceded the Gospels, the tradition was already in place, the Jewish tradition was in place, the, the practice of the Eucharist, the sacraments, were already being take, you know, carried forward after the Last Supper. It begins there. Those all occurred before the writing of the Gospels. So the tradition was well underway. We know that the, how important the tradition is because over and over and over and over again, the church had to deal with heresies, with people who wanted to make Christ something he was not. Every one of the councils deals with somebody saying, he's this, he's this. They were using reason to show something that wasn't true. So the tradition is very important. It, it, it's like a guard against all the things that we can do with our mind to, to make what's real something other than it is. Um, the sacraments are real. Um, they were instituted by Christ, the, the Last Supper, to just take one, you know. Um, so in them we have Christ objectively present, not um, something simply believed in the mind, um, that anybody could make what he wanted. Um, what we see in the Protestant world is a constant fragmenting because people come to points where they disagree with each other and they'll go off and start a new, a new branch. Um, um, one of the, the, I've said this before, what you find in the Protestant mind is, Linda, um, what you find in the Protestant mind is um, um, a subjective experience, completely subjective. There's no, there's no way to account for it or confirm it. It can't be tested out. Um, and it looks, it looks at nature as depraved. Those are fundamental to the Reformation thinkers. Now stop and just think about this for a second. In the, the remember the two differences between the angelic and symbolic. The, in, in Plato, the only thing you can know are the forms, the eternal forms, because they're the only things that are unchanging. Okay? Do I need to do this again? You've already got this, right? In the Protestant mind that's Platonic, the only thing you can know, according to Plato, are the forms because they're unchanging. Everything in the material world, things, everything in the material world is changing. It's constantly in flux, so it can't be known. 
according to Plato. Raphael, Milton's thinking is absolutely platonic. Raphael says, to show you the war in heaven, what you cannot know, I've got to use corporeal things. So he uses mountains, gunpowder, he uses things that we can identify with to explain this. But we never get back to this world. Mountains and gunpowder are clearly metaphors for something we don't know. I hope that's clear, right? The, the angels pick up mountains and start throwing. What, what we're supposed to assume is that what they did was something beyond description, to pick up a mountain. So he had to use something like that, something grandiose and impossible, to explain the nature of the war. But what that was, we don't know. We've got a metaphor. So we never get back to the natural order. We never get back here. With Aristotle, we start with things. The wind hover, the little four-year-old girl who pricks herself. We start with what's going on in the actual world, but by a process of thinking in terms of analogies, we end up seeing something supernatural. So, because for Plato, Plato said, we can know the essences of things, <coughs> but the essences of things actually exist in the things themselves. So the, the mind can abstract. I think I did this, but let me go through this again, because this is philosophy 101. <laughs> Sorry, because I, I don't want people to, I don't want to lose you here. Can dogs know the notion color? Can dogs know the notion color? No, they can't. Do our, sen our senses know the notion color? Our senses? No. Do our senses know colors? Animals see colors. They know colors. Sorry? They can see colors. Who? Animals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I know, I know. Hold on. I'm talking about the difference between a notion of color and actual colors. Do our senses know colors? Yellow, blue, green, red. They do, right? Do our senses know the notion of color? No. Because the notion is an idea. We get to an idea of something by abstracting what our senses give to us. You all look puzzled. Everybody knows that we, we, we experience colors, different colors, through, particular colors, through our senses, right? Can our senses grasp the idea of color? No, because what comes through our senses are particular things themselves. Color's not in a particular, it's an abstraction, it's a notion, an idea. Right? Okay? How do we get to that? By an abstracting process in the mind. The, the senses deliver particular things to us. Um, a red egg, a purple egg, a green egg for Easter, all these different colors. The mind can abstract from these particulars to an essence, an idea. Let me put it differently. Um, um, when we see an, a, a eucalyptus tree and an oak tree, how do we know that they're both trees because they're so different? We only know that they're trees because our mind can abstract from particular things and grasp the notion of treeness, an essence. 
The senses cannot know essences. The senses know particular things. Okay? How important is this? It's absolutely important. Um, If you went to a doctor and a doctor saw 10 people who had different diagnoses, how would he understand what to do if he didn't understand the nature of a disease? Right? And you know that doctors make mistakes all the time. If you're going to go for jury duty, how in the world could you decide on a case unless you had some notion, notion of justice? Because every case is different. Every case is particular. If we were stuck in a world of particulars and didn't know universals, we could never make a judgment of it on things dealing with medication or justice. Or Is everybody following? Hmm? Okay. So, with the platonic... Um, We never get back to things. Plato's response to the body was negative. He called the body a prison house because it was constantly constantly decaying, constantly in flux. Aristotle said, no, the forms of things are in the things. If we know these, we come to essences. We know higher things. (coughs) So, through the... St. Paul, we know the things that are unmade. We know, we know invisible things by the things that are made. How do we get to the invisible? Through the visible. The visible reveals it. If we, why do we read poets? For, because by learning to read, to, to look at the concrete things the way poets do, we learn about higher things, the things that are contained in them. By the way, who were the great apologists for the 20th century? G.K. Chesterton, C.S. Lewis, Tolkien, John Paul, were all raised on literature. Merton, that was Merton. So, if the Protestant mind makes face the principal thing and looks at nature as depraved, there's no way to confirm that. There's no way to test it out. There's no way to argue. There's no way to reason. You, you can't reason with that person. He's going to be in his subject of feelings very often and um, we'll take that as the basis of hearing. There's He's not accountable to anybody. That's why the fragmenting goes on and on and on. In the Catholic Church, it's, it's, it, the starting points are there is something objectively real there. Christ is present in this. Faith is essential. We can't, we can't go there without a faith. But we have all these other helps. We've got the tradition. We've got the sacraments. We've got all these other things. And we've got our own experiences. If nature is depraved, we have very little to learn from it. We, we, in the Protestant world, we've lost our way into the natural order. It's circumvented. We can't get our way back into it. In the Catholic world, because we believe in the body and the senses, we know from our own experiences. So, for example, we know, every one of us, every one of us, if we look at ourselves, we know when we're lustful. We know when we're being gluttonous, when we're eating too much. We know when we love things avarice too much, when we're being slothful, when our anger is out of control, when we envy somebody. And pride, we know, is at the center of all of them. This is Dante's purgatory, by the way. Pride and envy and wrath are contained in every one of these. Pride is the, the, the tendency to make ourselves more important than anything. In the Protestant world, if our faith is the starting point, the question that should, all of us should ask is, does that encourage us in our pride? Because nobody can tell us 
There's no way to confirm it. Nobody, who, can, who, can, who can argue with somebody who starts that way? There's no way that that person will make his own feelings, his own way of thinking, the sum total of everything. In the Catholic world, we have a natural world. We can say, the church has been asking this, we can say, I eat too much, I've got to get a hold of my eating. Sex is too much on my mind, I have to work on that. Every one of these things can be answered. If I'm too given to anger, I have to ask myself deliberately, I have to practice being humbler to not do something. So we can look to our own experiences every day because there's, we have the capacity for self-knowledge and for self-correction. That's a part of our work in the natural order. Will that be enough? No. Because if salvation is our ultimate end, we can't get there without God's help. But nature, nature and grace, reason and faith go together. There's no reason that won't, won't have its power increased by faith because they all have the same source, God. So they're not set against each other. One doesn't blank the other out. It's a part of our natural condition to learn from our own experiences, to use reason. If faith is a vital power in us, that faith should inform, it should inflame our reason. We should be able to do more with it. But here, we, we always, we're always faced with an act of submission to the natural order and to the holy, to the holiness we've been called to. I hope that's clear. If sex is too much on our minds, we can correct ourselves. We have to submit. There, there's an assumption of a submission to the natural order. I can say, I need to get this under control and then start tripping over our failures <laughs> to do that. I mean, I'm assuming I'm talking for everybody here. I know I'm talking for myself. My own sins scare me. Um, so in the Catholic world, there's an encouragement against pride. Remember that the one, the one, the, the greatest damaging effect of the fall is to turn our way, to turn our love away from God towards ourselves. Self-love, pride, to make ourselves more important than others. Is there an encouragement to pride in the fact that the Protestant makes his own act that can't be checked? the beginning and end of things. In the Catholic world, we're constantly asked to submit. <laughs> Obedience is a starting point. To submit to the natural order, to submit to Christ. And if we take the sacraments seriously, I'm, taking, I'm assuming most of us do, if you take Christ into you, into you how, how can any of us do that and not be humbled? As a matter of just pure human experience. If we really believe, if that's an act of faith, faith in what? If we really believe that he's present, is not a divine power entering. Remember that word I used before, theosis? We're gradually being transformed into gods. That Christ returned in our human body. We're, we're being invited to share in divinity, that that's our ultimate end, to be the children of God. Dante's word at the beginning of the Paradiso will be transhumanized. Transhumanized. If we take the sacraments in, if you take the Eucharist in, 
and you believe in the depths of your heart, Christ's divinity is in us. In that moment, we are in his kingdom with him. Can that happen and, and we not be humbled? So there's so much more going on in the Catholic world. Um, and remember, um, I mean, I, it just it startles me when I think about this. When Dante comes to the end of the Commedia, he will have he will have met everybody. He will have returned to everybody. He will come back to write the poem, but he's united himself with Beatrice, Virgil, Lucia, Mary, his grandfather, God. At the end of Paradise Lost, where's Milton? He's a man absolutely alone. What in the Protestant world encourages to, to, to be autonomous, isolated individuals? That our act of faith isolates us from others. We see that in Milton's treatment. And remember, remember when God is talking with Adam, and Adam's lonely, and God says to him, why are you fussing about your solitude? I'm solitary. He said, I'm solitary. He's alone as God. How much in the Protestant world conduces towards an isolated autonomy to isolate the individual, to, to make him accountable to nobody, to live in his own world? How much in the Catholic world moves us towards others, communion with others, to be with the, the mystical body of Christ? So when you set Paradise Lost next to, we would not in Dante yet, but if you set Paradise Lost next to Milton, it seems to me there's, there's so much this Im, that implicitly reveals itself. It's not blatant. Mil, Milton's not a catechist. He's not saying, do this, do this, do this, do this. He's writing an epic. But um, it seems to me that it, it reflects so much of the way Milton and Dante look at the world and that we can learn a lot about our own faith by looking at the poems that way. So um, I'm gonna, I wanna read this. Um, I would encourage all of you to read this, um, this handout I gave you called The Symbolic Angelic Imagination. Alan Tate wrote two essays among the host of others, and these two to me are particularly good. He wrote one on the symbolic imagination and another one on the angelic. He identifies the angelic imagination with the Protestant world. The, the focus of this passage here that I've given everybody is the emotional life. C.S. Lewis, who I think is one of the great apologists of the modern world, two things at stake here in poetry. You know these are dear to my life, so um, those of you who've been here for a while know that according to the Platonic soul, We could call these two powers both appetitive. They're both appetitive. But Milton distinguished them because spiritedness, or what he calls, or the Greeks, Homer would have called themos, anger. Anger. Good anger. Spiritedness are the desires, the appetites directed towards transcendent things like 
like honor, justice, beauty, goodness, things like that, truth, all the universals. Because when the mind puts itself on universals, it tends to get closer and closer to God. Plato said, reason controls the appetites. These are the, the desires of physical things. Reason controls the appetites through this middle element. You can call this the heart, the seat of the emotions. Um, the love, the love of higher things. Plato used the image of a chariot, chariot driver with two horses, a white and a black horse. And he said, the job he's got is to control the driving, the direction, by, by using the white horse to control the black. He had to, he had to learn to work the two of them so they worked in union with each other. But basically what you can say here, it's, it's through this middle element, the emotions and, and the way we form them, that we, we become human. Because to let our appetites rule us means we become like the beasts. Animals, just the beast. To let reason control us is to become angelic. It's through the middle element that we're most human, was fully human. So what we do with the emotions is really important because it's in the heart that we learn to love. And you know that the highest call for all of us, at least from Christ, is to love. That's what he offered us. That's what we believe we were meant to do. We were meant to love. That means union with another. We have, we have, it's not just enough to put up with another human being. Because there are times I know my wife wants to put her hands around my neck and wring it. And I know there are times that I feel exactly the same way. But we, if, we, if we're left there, there's no union. I mean, we're <clears throat> looking at each other with blank eyes. Our call is to love one another. And remember, <laughs> Not just when we deserve it. Christ didn't come here because we deserve, he loved us when we didn't deserve it. We have to learn to love others, maybe most of all when they don't deserve it. Because if it depends on our deserving it, how much are we doing it for our own pride? To have my way, to get my way. Fathers, for those of you who are in Mass this morning, you know that Father was repeating that again. He does it a lot. So let me, with that in mind, let me read this passage from Alan Tate. According to C.S. Lewis, one of the most pressing needs of our time is the problem of forming ordinate emotions. The problem isn't new. Augustine and Aristotle faced it long ago. Augustine defines virtue as ordo amor, the ordinate condition of the affections in which every object is accorded that kind and degree of love which is appropriate to it. Aristotle said that the aim of education is to make the pupil like and dislike what he ought. When the age for reflection thought comes, reflective thought comes, the pupil who has been thus trained in ordinate affections or just sentiments will easily find first principles. The, I've been saying this for a couple of years. The greatest task that we face as Christians is ordering our emotions. To get rid of the selfishness in it in us, the tendency to want to do things just for ourselves, and somehow to work that out with each other. That means very often we have to ask things of each other that are not easy, and we have to ask of ourselves things that are not easy, if we're going to love properly. 
If you take away the natural order, if you take it out and say it's depraved, how do we learn to adjust our emotions to the things in the world? I should not love this as much as this. I should not love my dog more than I love my wife. Even if my dog makes me more comfortable, he's more affectionate, he's more faithful, he does what I want him to do. <laughs> my wife doesn't. Right? We have to learn to order our loves. We can't love things more than they should be loved without damaging something else. If I love my dog more than my wife, what does it mean for the way I love her? If I love dinner parties more than I love my husband, am I loving my husband the way I should? I mean, you know, whatever, whatever the disorders are in our world. Um, if our task is to learn ordinate emotions, how do we do it? By the way, here, sorry. One of the best things we could do is read more poetry. <laughs> Pause for commercial. <laughs> oh God, it shakes me to say that, but I hope you know I take that seriously because good poets help us to have, reading a poem about a four-year-old girl pricking herself. I don't know about, I, you know I've gone through, I've read it a dozen times and I break up at the end of it every time I do. How many of us see a moment like that that there's something transcendent going on? If we miss it, do we really bring love to it the way we should? When we look at a bird, a wind hover in the sky the way Hopkins does, can we look at a bird again afterwards and not feel some thrill saying, there's Christ? Do we really see things as concrete things as they are? And do we love them with the appropriate degree or kind of love? It's the great problem of our world. It's the problem our fall left us with, to learn to order our emotions. And if you're in your head, always justifying yourself, how in the world do you ever straighten yourself out? If you're always arguing or you always want what you, you know, you get what you want, for any of us, how do we learn to love? We will go to our deathbed without ever having loved the way we were called to love. Sorry. Commercial breaks over. So, Lewis, in Abolition, I love that book, by the way, it's a good book, to, Abolition of Man is, is I think, one, one of his better books. Um, page two in the back, Lewis is, um, Lewis, I mean, Alan Tate says this about taste. Taste is the discipline of feeling according to the laws of the order, a discipline of submission to a permanent limitation of man. The discipline has been aggravated by mathematical reason whose purpose is the control of nature. Here we have the Cartesian split, taste, feeling, respect for the depth of nature resolved into a subjectivism which denies the sensible world. For nature has become geometrical at a high level of abstraction in which clear and distinct ideas only are workable. That's Cartesian. What we know are our ideas. How can we form the taste, the emotions we should have in our hearts, if we don't learn to adjust our feelings to the concrete things of the world, if we live in abstractions? The sensibility is frustrated since it's denied its perpetual refreshment in nature. Take nature away. God, I just, I mean, isn't it the modern world? Take nature away. What refreshes us? My wife loves to garden. I love her flowers. When Suzanne goes out in the garden, I mean, God, I can't tell you how much I, and she goes out in the garden. 
She brings, she brings flowers into our house all the time. Always natural flowers. She loves to arrange them. I can't do that. But I cannot not but love what she does. I mean, she, it's, it's almost like she's half speaking to those flowers. There's this responsiveness between her and nature. There's a reproachment. In the modern world, man is estranged from nature. He lives in his own desires, whatever he wants. How do we find our way back into the natural order? Sorry. Poetry. <laughs> Sciences, um, in, in the best of sense, I mean, when sciences, you know, approach with that sense that science and faith should not be opposed to each other at all. It's, it's a way into the mystery of God. Um, the really good scientist, the really good scientist knows that. You look at, I mean, there's lots of scientists who make that argument really well, convincingly. Reason is thus detached from feeling and likewise from the moral sense, the third and executive member of the psychological triad moving through the will, feeling in this scheme being isolated or, as Buchanan put it, occulted. It's, it's secreted away. Um, one of our kids um, got put in a, um, a, was a, a drinking rehab program for a while when we were younger. Susanna and I had to go to it, and, and I can remember the, the, one, of the, the, one of the talks of one of the counselors. I, I mean, it, I wasn't aware of these things, you know, growing up just wasn't part of my life. Um, um, I remember one of the counselors talking about kids stuffing their emotions. It was a common phrase in the program. Kids never learned how to feel. And it was one of the reasons for you know, the program, that trying to get kids to open their hearts to feel, you know, to, to risk feelings. I mean, think about the modern world and what it does to make the emotions occulted, hidden, stuffed, stuffed. And the other extreme, to live on them uncontrollably, to make them the ruler of your lives. If your emotions are ruling your lives, you're in trouble. Um, because you're once again having your own way. I mean, you're just doing things. The, the struggle of making the emotions ordinate is the great task of our time. Making a place for the emotions, learning to form good emotions, to learn how to love. How do we, how do, we do this beginning in our families with our kids and you know, in all of our relations with each other? So he says, um, feelings get occulted. Man has lost his access to material forms. We get the hypertrophy of the intellect. The mind becomes too... C.S. Lewis says the same thing. Hypertrophy of the, of the intellect and the hypertrophy of the will. They go together. When neither intellect nor will is bound to the human scale, their projection becomes godlike and man becomes an angel. There's a line in here. Oh, here, in the bottom of the first page. Look at the bottom. This is C.S. Lewis. It's speaking to the same thing in the um, long paragraph at the bottom of the page. Herein lies least, at least part of our answer to the angelic beastism characterizing our time. This is C.S. Lewis. The chest, magnanimity, sentiment, these are the indispensable liaison officers between cerebral man and visceral man. It may even be said that it's by this middle element that man is man. For by his intellect he's mere spirit, and by his appetite mere animal. 
It's not, here's the point, I just underline this, it's not excess of thought, but defect of fertile and generous emotion that makes the rationalist out. Their heads are no bigger than the ordinary, it's the atrophy of the chest beneath that makes them seem so. We make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and bid the Geldings be fruitful. How do we give good emotions? How do we pass those on to other people if we don't have them in ourselves? I, those of you who have been here with me, I've said it. You know, Pla what was Plato's great truth in the Republic? Mind your own business. If we don't learn to order our own souls, if we don't take ourselves on, if we don't put away the goddamn selfishness that's at the root of every one of us, if we don't get a hold of that, how in the world can we bring that to others? We have to mind our business, we have to order our own emotions, or we can't bring those emotions to others. Let me end with this um, description from Tate. Um, I, I just would encourage you to read this whole thing because I think it's really good. Um, Tate's using Dante to illustrate what he's calling the symbolic imagination. You could call it the analogical. The, the symbolic imagination begins with the ordinary thing, bread and wine, and finds in it, through a, a process of working through analogies, the higher ascent, the higher order. And he says Dante's consummate in that sense because he begins with the ordinary thing. We'll see that when we start Dante in a couple of weeks. But here's what he said. This is, I just think this is so good. On page five. That the gift of analogy was not Dante's alone, every medievalist knows the most striking proof of its diffusion and the most useful example for my purpose that I know is the letter of St. Catherine of Siena to Brother Raymond of Capua. A young Sienese, Nicola Tuldo, had been unjustly convicted of treason and condemned to death. Catherine became his angel of mercy, giving him daily solace, the meaning of the cross, the healing powers of the blood, and so reconciled him to the faith that he accepted his last end, his death. Now I have difficulty believing people who say they live in the blood of Christ, for I take them to mean that they have the faith and hope someday to live in it, that is, it's in your head as, a, as a, an act of faith in the intellect alone. I take it to mean that they have the faith and hope someday to live in it. The evidence of the blood is one's power to produce it, the power to show it as a common thing and to make it real, literally, in the action. That's the Eucharist, yes? It's not just a symbol, it's, it's a living act. Christ is there to make it real, literally, in action. For the report of the blood is very different from its reality. From the re a report of it, talking about it, is different from its action, its reality, what it's doing. St. Catherine does not report it, she recreates it, so that its <coughs> analogical meaning is confirmed again in blood that she has seen. This is how she does it. Then the condemned man came like a gentle lamb, and seeing me, he began to smile and wanted me to make the sign of the cross. God, this is touching. This is, so, this is real. When he'd received the sign, I said, down to the bridle, my sweet brother, for soon shalt thou be in the enduring life. He prostrated himself with great gentleness, and I stretch out his neck, 
and bowed me down and recalled to him the blood of the Lamb. His lips said not, save Jesus and Catherine. And so saying, I received his head in my hands. He was executed, his head cut off. Closing my eyes in the divine goodness and saying, I will. When he was at rest, my soul rested in peace and quiet and in so great a fragrance of blood that I could not bear to remove the blood which had fallen on me from him. It's deeply shocking, as all proximate incarnations of the word are shocking, whether, it, whether in Christ and the saints, or in Dostoevsky, James Joyce, or Henry James. I believe it was T.S. Eliot who made, the accessible, made accessible again to an ignorant generation a common Christian insight when he said that people cannot bear very much reality. Those of you who did Eliot remember it from our work on Eliot. I take this to mean that only extraordinary courage and perhaps even genius can face the spiritual truth in its physical body. Flaubert said that the artist, the, sol the artist, the soldier, and the priest face death every day, so do we all. Yet it's perhaps nearer to them than to others, it is their particular responsibility. When St. Catherine when St. Catherine rests in so great a fragrance of blood, it is no doubt the blood of the offertory which the celebrant offers to God, cum adore suavitatis, with the odor of sweetness, but with the literal odor of the species of wine, not of blood. St. Catherine had the courage of genius which permitted her to smell the blood of Christ in a cold of Tulu's blood clotted on her dress. She smelled the two bloods not alternately, but at one instant, in a single act compounded of spiritual insight and physical perception. I would say it was an act of absolute empathy that she united with Christ in the blood in that moment and asked him to do the same. She wasn't thinking about it. This was not an idea in her head. This was a concretely realized action. Not abstraction, not an idea. It's like that little girl in Supernatural Love you know, that pricks herself, and in that moment, the way the poet presents that, if you remember the poem, she's one with Christ on the cross. Did the Father see it? <laughs> no. So, um, so some of the things to take away from this, you know, in Milton, Milton is the great poet of modernity in some sense. He, he's so problematic, um, he points towards the modern world, even, even though in some ways he looks back to Homer in, in I think, unfortunate ways. I'm going to say when we start Dante, Dante is the poet par excellence of the modern world. And I'll, ex I'll explain why when we get there. Dante is at, is at the threshold of the Middle Ages and modernity. He's writing two centuries before Milton. And I'm going to make the argument, see if you accept it or not, that he's far more modern than Milton in everything he does. Um, he's prophetic of the commercial republic. You know that it comes into existence when he's born, and everything he does is expressive of a Catholic sensibility. He is the consummate poet of love. That's where we're going next. Okay. Anybody in thoughts or...